Hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, December 18th, 2023. Today, we have a mailbag podcast with Sam Bender. We will be covering a wide range of interesting topics, including IUDs, the risks of an abortion, prolapse, natural birth control, and cervical lips. It's been a while since Sam has been on the podcast, and we're glad he was able to join us again to go through the mailbag. Next week, we will be dropping a podcast on Christmas Day, and it is going to be a birth story. Reminder, for all of you listening on Alper Spotify, if you can rate this podcast, it would be great, preferably with five stars. If you're on Apple, please do leave comments. If you want to email us any questions for future mailbag podcasts, please do so. You can email us directly at hw at healthfulwoman.com, or you can go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com, and click on the link that says, send us your questions. Also, you can pre-order the book that Emily Astor and I wrote called The Unexpected. It comes out in April. We have a link on our website, so take a look at that. All right, thanks for listening. For those of you celebrating, I hope you have a terrific Christmas weekend, and we will see all of you again next Monday. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Sam Bender, welcome back to the podcast. It's It's been a while since I've had you in the hot seat. Yeah, I think it was at the beginning of pandemic, so it must be must be close to three years. Yeah, I think the bridge of your nose is finally healed. A little bit. From, <laughs> a little bit. From, from your permanent mask scar. That was that was gruesome. Yep, and, 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 I, and I managed to, you know, to help fund, you know, I think college funds for a lot of dermatologists on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're going to be doing a mailbag podcast, and as I was telling you before, basically our listeners sending their questions from all over the world, all sorts of topics, and we we address them. We're going to hit them one at a time. So let's start. And just so our listeners know, I did not prep Sam with the questions in advance. Unlike Quiz Show, he's not cheating. This is really right on the spot. So you're getting full unfiltered bender right now. Here we go. <laughs> so question number one is from Rachel. And her question is a short one, but a very good one. Does having an abortion affect your fertility down the road? Oh, if everything is uncomplicated, then the short answer is no, not a bit. Stopping a pregnancy or finishing any pregnancy is a self-limited thing. Afterwards, everything should go back to your normal. It can take you know, a cycle or two or a month or two to, to have your menstrual cycle go back to your normal, depending on how far the pregnancy was and what method of pregnancy termination is picked. But an uncomplicated pregnancy termination should not affect future pregnancy. Of the various different surgical procedures that you know, that can be employed to, to stop pregnancies at, at early stage, like any surgical procedure, there are potential for complications. We go out of our way to to safeguard against complications. For example, pre-medicating with uh, an antibiotic before a surgical procedure is recommended and going and having a procedure done by somebody skilled in the procedure is obviously in the best interest of, uh, of, of, of a patient looking to stop a pregnancy. With early pregnancies, we even have non-surgical techniques that have gained favor and are even safer in, in many respects. Whenever 
a patient that's having surgery, we counsel the patient in regards to potential complications of surgery. And interestingly, no matter what the procedure we're talking about, whether it's a small procedure like uh, a dilatation and curatage to, uh, to empty the uterine content or or brain surgery or a cesarean section, you know, the risks that we talk about are actually always the same three things. You're talking about the potential for infection, for bleeding, for damage to whatever you operate on, whatever's near it. And different procedures have obviously different risks. But in skilled hands, uh, surgical termination of pregnancy should not affect future pregnancy. There are small risks of having infections or damage to the to the to the uterus with some of these procedures, but there are various techniques that we employ to minimize these risks. And it's really not different from a natural miscarriage, meaning the chance of having a complication from a miscarriage, you can get an infection. Again, it depends if you need a procedure or not for an incomplete miscarriage, but things like bleeding or scar tissue, I mean, anything can happen after any pregnancy. But I think the point is, these are very safe procedures and the chance of a complication is very, very low, fortunately. Absolutely correct. <laughs> and when I talk about terminating a pregnancy, I'm not, yeah. I'm not limiting my conversation to terminating an unwanted pregnancy. Right. But, uh, but uh, you know, we, we discuss uh, stopping any pregnancy, whether it's abnormal or not yeah. viable versus a pregnancy that is viable, that is unwanted. Uh, the techniques and the surgical procedures are the same and the risks are are the same. Right. Okay, great. Next question from Hannah. Hi, I saw Dr. Fox's episode on the toast. And by the way, do you know what the toast is, Sam? I don't. <laughs> well, you're not a millennial. The toast is a very popular podcast who we just... I just interviewed one of the hosts, Jackie Ashry, who was a patient of ours, as you know. Uh, it's not a secret because she just came and talked about it on the podcast. But they have a very, very popular podcast that I'm sure many people you know know about it. But like you, I didn't know about it either before. All right. So I saw Dr. Fox's episode on the toast and learned about this podcast. A question I have that I can't seem to get a straight answer is, are IUDs considered an abortifacient? meaning do they cause abortion? I've talked to a few different people and done some research and don't seem to find a clear answer. I understand it is not something that can necessarily be tested ethically. So does that mean there's no definitive answer? Therefore, you make a decision based on your comfort level. And then to give context, I am pro-life. And when my doctor discussed birth control options with me, it never came up. And I never knew to ask about how my morals played a factor in that decision. It wasn't until a well-intentional friend with similar convictions brought up the subject that I was open to this possibility. So how do IUDs prevent pregnancy? Do they prevent it or do they end it? Great question. And in, interestingly, a lot of the data about how, how IUDs work really wasn't elucidated until uh, fairly recently. There are two different types of IUDs that are, that are available in this country. One is a hormonal IUD that contains progesterone in some amount. And the, and the progesterone IUDs have um, advantage that, uh, that they actually improve menstrual cycle as well as preventing pregnancy. They're, they're not a device that would cause a pregnancy to, to be terminated. They, in fact, the progesterone IUD is thought to work on multiple levels. The progesterone itself thins the lining of the uterus so that implantation of the embryo, uh, if one were to be created, you know, would would not occur. 
It's thought to prevent fertilization in, in most instances uh, by, by affecting uh, both the cervical mucus of the patient as well as the transit time in the fallopian tube. And so it probably works on multiple levels, but the short answer is that it does not terminate a pregnancy. It, it, it likely prevents both fertilization as well as implantation. And the combination is thought to provide you know, what the companies cleverly call nearly 100% birth control. Right. It's, uh, it's considered the, uh, probably the top uh, method of preventing pregnancy that, uh, uh, in, in terms of birth control. Right. It's right there next to abstinence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The copper IUD is, it's an IUD that's in various forms been utilized for birth control going back centuries. It's actually got, you know, sort of an interesting, interesting history, but the copper IUD has been shown to prevent fertilization. It does not improve periods. It does not affect the lining of the, of the uterus tremendously. It doesn't affect when menstrual periods are going to occur, and it does not affect ovulation. What it does do is that it's thought that the copper that's wrapped around literally a, a T-shaped piece of plastic that's placed inside of the uterus, that this copper carries with it a positive charge and that the membrane of the sperm cell and the membrane of the egg cell do not interact because of these positively charged ions that are present in both the uterus and the fallopian tube as a result of placing the IUD. Delving back into some of the bizarre history of the copper TIUD is that copper was long thought to be a magical thing that prevented pregnancy. And there are stories that go back to apparently Bedouins that had magical rocks that they would put inside the uterus of their camels before going across the desert so that the camel would not get pregnant. And they didn't, obviously, at, at that period of time, have any clue how this worked. And so they thought it was magic. You know, fast forwarding to, you know, 2023, you know, the Bedouins are no longer with us and the, those camels are long gone, but they actually have the rocks and they have tested them and they contain copper. And so the history of the IUD goes way, way back. Wow. But the short answer is, no, they do not cause abortion. No abortion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they do prevent, they're both thought to prevent fertilization. The progesterone IUD has effect on preventing implantation. Interestingly enough, both types of IUD can be used as a morning after a kind of contraception as right. well, because essentially you're, you're placing it before fertilization would have occurred. Right, exactly. All right, cool, good stuff. So, Hannah, no worries, you're good, and IUD should work. All right, next question is from Sabina. Hi, Dr. Fox, just listened to your podcast with Jackie, Sam, that's also the toast, and I really enjoyed it, especially how informative and down-to-earth you were. It got me thinking, would you be able to speak on prolapse? Just had my first baby, I had natural physiological birth, and now three months postpartum, I'm noticing a minor prolapse. My GP said it's a stage one. I'd be interested to know more how to get rid of it as I'm not finding any helpful info online about it. And my doctor just said to get used to it. Mm, yikes. It would really be helpful to hear from you and or your guests to speak on it. I'm definitely happy that you're here, Sam. This is 
a gynecologic issue that is common and you have a lot of expertise in it. So what would you say about, let's talk about prolapse in general and then like what it is, what we're talking about, and then prolapse specifically related to a recent pregnancy. Okie dokie. So <laughs> there are various different supports in terms of ligaments of uh, within the pelvis of how the uterus is supported, the bladder is supported, and there are different layers within the uh, the anatomy that help provide support for the or what we call the pelvic floor. There are a series of muscles that are present, and typically, typically when we are discussing prolapse, we're talking about a change in the normal architecture of the pelvis. That quote unquote things aren't you know quite the way they used to be, mm-hmm. um, and uh, some people use euphemisms as you know like uh, my uterus has dropped, my cervix is is dropped. The bladder is, 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 has fallen, and all of these things are describing the, the, the normal support or the pre-pregnancy support that existed in, in this area that you know, prior to, uh, to, to a pregnancy, labor, or delivery. Prolapse is, is described in various different ways from you know, different classes to, you know, to different ways of uh, doing the physical exam that other gynecologists can look at your values and get a sense of what, is, what has uh, changed, what is lower you know, in the pelvis than it used to be. There are a series of uh, people in our field that specialize in the management of pelvic floor prolapse, and it's got its own fellowship and then its own discipline called urogynecology. And the urogynecologist specializes in evaluating patients for what type of prolapse they have and tailoring treatment options depending on severity of symptoms that somebody has. Although it may be true that the anatomy is going to be a little bit altered after even an uncomplicated pregnancy and natural delivery, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is going to have abnormal symptoms related to this. It doesn't mean that having sexual intercourse is going to be uncomfortable it doesn't mean that that urine that uh, you're not going to be able to hold your urine when you cough sneeze lift and you know and, and get back to to normal activities or even strenuous exercise mm-hmm. but it means that that you know but for some patients these changes can result in in symptoms in general in general uh, prolapse is sort of a uh, you know, a big term that describes almost any kind of a change where the where where the anatomy in in the in the pelvis has has been altered, where the cervix you know may be lower into the vagina than it used to be, where there may be bulging of the vaginal walls from either the bladder pushing down or the rectum pushing up, and um, what to do, you know, how to prevent, how to fix, uh, you know, is is exactly what the urogynecologist is all about. The first questions I ask when a patient, you know, when a patient has had a baby is, is ascertaining whether or not there are other symptoms. Are there, is there a discomfort? Is there an issue, you know, with urinary incontinence uh, that, that has changed since, since delivery and coupling symptoms with, with examination? You can figure out sort of what the next steps may be. There's a natural healing time after having a baby where things will continue to improve without having major procedures you know performed like additional surgeries in the early period after having a baby hormonal changes uh, may contribute to you know a delay in some of 
and, and some of the anatomic healing that that uh, could happen uh, naturally. Uh, but there are also a subset of patients that have had significant change in their anatomy that uh, leads to symptoms that that pelvic floor physical therapy, pelvic floor exercise, or even medication may not may not uh, alleviate. And those patients may ultimately turn up being candidates for a surgical repair. How, how do you decide when you see someone after delivery? Because pretty much everyone after delivery, like you said, is going to have some anatomic differences compared to before, especially if it's their first baby. How do you decide, you see them typically six weeks or two months or whatever it is, whether you're going to recommend anything versus just watch and wait? Is it just based on other symptoms or is it based on the severity on your exam? Like, what is it that you use to make that decision? Yeah, great question. Both yeah, both is the real answer. It's the examination, you know, is, is key. But even before that, the conversation is important. You know, what open-ended questioning with you know with with introducing the topic and asking what changes have you noticed is you know is a simple is a simple starting point and you get a good sense of what's been going on since the delivery there are obviously some stories where you're going to be far more concerned and 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 do a deep dive and or a, a bigger examination you know more rapidly a patient that has had you know what a very large baby, a very prolonged labor, a a, a larger you know laceration than, mm-hmm. than normal. Yeah, you know, uh, are the are the easy starting starting points? You know, those are the patients that you're not going to wait. You know, six weeks or two months to to begin to evaluate. You're going to start much earlier. Every patient it needs to be evaluated at the postpartum visit, and every patient will benefit from some level of physical therapy, whether it's learning to do a simple exercise that that doesn't require you know anything fancy called the kegel exercise targeting the muscles that you know that will that are supporting the pelvic floor uh, attempting to strengthen them and i think that especially in a city like new york there's a there's a, a lot of opportunity to find uh, very good programs for uh, pelvic floor physical therapy to help patients that are having difficulty you know, figuring out, you know, uh, how to do a Kegel or, or having, uh, or, or having symptoms despite the fact that they've started these, you know, these exercises. But it starts with an expectation of how long this is supposed to last for. Temporarily, there is pelvic floor damage, you know, with any delivery. And thankfully, the body does a wonderful job in most instances, you know, for allowing recovery of this, of this portion of the body. Sometimes it requires a longer recovery than other times. Sometimes some patients require waiting until uh, until natural hormones have returned you know, until they till they notice a, a com, you know a more complete recovery. And some patients may not re- recover yeah, completely, depending on other factors that you can't always predict. And those are the patients that you need to be able to identify and and help target. You know what therapies. Uh, you know, other than simply waiting or trying you know, pelvic floor PT may be of benefit. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think for Sabina's doctor who said, get used to it, or that's the message she got, I think that's probably not great. I think that there's, maybe there's a component that, that can't be fixed and that's just the, the consequence of having a baby. But I think until someone's really given a real go at physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy, it's hard to know if that's the case. And I think really the, 
one of the ideas is that this is not something you really want to get surgery on until you're done having kids, if you need surgery ever, right? Because the problem is if you do surgery and then if you have another kid, you pretty much, it's very hard to deliver vaginally again, because it's going to potentially upset the surgery and you have to do C-sections. And so it's, I would say it's rare that people need surgery or get surgery before they're done having kids, if ever. Oh, agreed. You know, I think saying get used to it is not the right answer. <laughs> Uh, get, get get used to it. It sort of implies this is, you know, th this is the way it has to be. And I have nothing to offer. My response would not be get used to it. My response would be, you know, a number of the a, a number of the things that you may be describing are completely normal. A lot of things will improve without doing anything whatsoever other than you know, giving a little bit more time and increasing that, you know, that recovery, uh, allowing the body to to heal itself over a longer period of time. And you can be proactive and say there are a number of small things that you can attempt on your own that may make things recover more rapidly. Right. And there are people out there that are that are very good and programs that are very good for literally quantifying strength of various different muscles in your body and allowing you to properly target how to exercise these muscles to be able to help in recovery. Part of it, you know, may be just compensating, you know, part of it may not be quite ever the way it used to be, but, but most of it seems to not require surgical things or, or, or super long recovery times. And like you said, it's rare that after a single baby, anybody requires a surgical procedure. Most of the physicians that provide, you know, the type of surgery that, you know, that that's commonly done for extreme pelvic floor prolapse are procedures that are typically done once childbearing you know, is complete and many times are procedures that are, are best done in combination to even you know potentially removing the uterus which right. obviously would 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 not be ever done for anybody considering a future pregnancy right all right excellent next question is from leah this is also gonna be another toaster New listener here, I am a toaster and found your podcast after your episode with Jackie of the Toast Patreon. I absolutely love your podcast. I find this information so, capitals, interesting. I would love to hear your opinion on, quote unquote, natural, non-hormonal birth control methods like tracking your ovulation cycle and using male condoms during ovulation. I would argue that's not natural, but okay. What would I need to know going into this to be able to do it effectively? Great, great idea. We call it natural family planning. Some people used to call it the rhythm method, and it's and it's a very simple process. It, you know, you start with you you start with something really easy, which is, you know, can you get pregnant any time in your menstrual cycle? And the answer is no. In fact, it's actually a fairly small window of time that one can conceive. If you can identify when your uh, quote unquote fertile time is, you know, then this is the moment in time where either you abstain from having vaginal intercourse or use some version of birth control. Start with the start with the basics. When a when a woman ovulates, that means releasing the egg, the egg can only be fertilized uh, literally for the next uh, couple of days. So about, you know, two days. In that 48 hour window, normal, you know, living, healthy sperm, you know, need to be in the vicinity to fertilize the egg. On the man's side, uh, healthy, uh, healthy men, you know, their sperm live for roughly three days. And so 
when somebody is attempting to get pregnant, you identify the time that somebody is going to ovulate and you time intercourse roughly every other day right. around the period of time you think you're releasing an egg. And when we talk about natural family planning, it's the, you know, it's the inverse. Right. You identify the time where you shouldn't be having sex if you're hoping not to get pregnant. You know, how do you know when you're ovulating? That's a good question too. And so I start by asking a simple question, which is, you know, from the first day of one period to the first day of the next period, how long is your cycle? And many women, you know, have a, a you know, have pretty consistent cycles. 28 days is the average uh, cycle length for uh, for women, but some people it's a little bit shorter, a little bit longer, or, or you may have a small range. If a patient says to me, I oh, my periods are always 28 to 30 days apart, then it's easy to have the next conversation of when can I conceive or when should I be careful not to conceive. And uh, easy rule of thumb is if you look at the first day of your period and you count back exactly 14 days, that's when you made the egg. So patients that have a shorter cycle, 26 days, for example, may be releasing the egg on day 12. And patients that have a 30-day cycle may be releasing the egg or ovulating on, on day 16. And so if that's the range and the sperm live for three days, then if my patient said I have 26 to 30 day cycles, you would say, you know, your fertile window is potentially as early as day nine of your cycle or as late as day 19 of your cycle. That's the time period that you employ other other techniques. You know, and uh, this right. um, this caller was talking <laughs> about making making our partner use a condom. Right. Which is a, works. Bar a barrier <laughs> method of birth control most definitely works not having not having sex at that time works there are even studies that suggest that you know that uh, albeit you know potentially not foolproof uh, the you know the the man withdrawing you know, right. before ejaculation has actually been researched and if there isn't an oops you know then uh, uh, then it actually is reasonably good birth control as well right it's not a hundred percent but it's it's better than not doing it. Yep. It's, yeah. It's, it's actually fairly close to the effectiveness of the condom. Yeah. Right. If you're pretty, because I, yeah, I think that doing what, you know, what you refer to as natural birth control or what you said, you know, we used to be called the rhythm method or whatever it is. Again, I think that it's, it is effective. It's going to work. It requires some math. It's not a hundred percent because you, sometimes your math is off. Sometimes you don't ovulate when you thought you were going to ovulate, your cycles could be off. And generally they're used for couples who they don't want to conceive, but if they did, it wouldn't be the end of the world. You know, it's like that kind of situation. Whereas if someone who's like, I absolutely positively cannot conceive, generally we don't recommend using those methods because they're not foolproof in a certain sense. No, and if the and if the issue is less about not using any birth control versus trying to avoid hormonal birth control, right? Yeah, you know, then then we yeah you know, then we talk about using non-hormonal nearly you know, nearly perfect, you know, types of birth control, like the copper IUD. Right. Like we talked about earlier. So that's a good option. All right. Our last question, shifting gears a little bit more towards the labor side. We had two questions about the cervical lip. I did not think that would happen. And they happened within a week of each other. One was from Samantha and one was from Jamie. I'm going to read Jamie's first because it's shorter. 
What's a cervical lip during labor? How is it treated? And when would there be an indication for a C-section if you have one? Update, I had a healthy baby boy. Love your podcast through my pregnancy. All the information helped me feel informed and empowered during my labor delivery and now postpartum. Samantha's question was a little bit longer, but basically to paraphrase, she said, I would love if you could talk about cervical lips on the podcast. I was first told by my labor and delivery nurse that I was nine centimeters, only to be told by my midwife that actually I was only five centimeters, but my cervix was swollen. Then we had a remedy in this, and ultimately she had a cervical lip. What are we talking about, Sam? What is that? Because that sounds strange. The cervical lip. Well, you know, I think it's, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, well, truly a medical term. I right. think it's a term that's been adopted to explain, you know, various different kinds of, you know, examinations that aren't so clear. As a woman progresses in labor, we talk about cervical dilatation, and that's how the cervix is opening. And when the cervix is completely open, uniformly, the doctor refers to the patient as being 10 centimeters dilated. It's not necessarily that she's 10 centimeters dilated. It's, it's that on the examination, attempting to see how open the cervix is, you can no longer feel any portion of the cervix because the baby's head has actually passed where the cervix is. And so at this point, we call it full dilatation, fully dilated, fully or 10 centimeters. And it all describes that on examination, you no longer can feel any portion of the cervix. Not all babies descend into the pelvis exactly the same way. There are a series of uh, what we call cardinal movements of the of the baby as the baby descends in the pelvis and rotates in a normal fashion to, you know, so that the baby is literally looking down towards the floor as the baby progresses through the cervix into the vaginal canal. There are many instances where the baby's head is not coming down perfectly straight and it has not finished rotating to look down as the baby is navigating through the cervix and the cervix is opening. And it's not uncommon for uh, the doctor to announce that, you know, the, that one portion of the cervix appears more open than another portion of the cervix in these instances. And so as somebody gets past or well advanced in, into active labor yeah, at seven, eight, nine centimeters. It's it's not uncommon in some instances to feel that there's a, a more cervix palpable at the at potentially the top of the vagina, and very little, if any, cervix palpable on examination at other portions around the baby's head. And at this point, the, the terminology that's commonly used is somebody will say that the cervix is at anterior lip. And what they're really describing is that most of the cervix is completely open, but they can still feel a little bit of the cervix anteriorly at, you know, uh, you know, at, at the top as the baby has likely not finished rotating to look completely down. And the next examination, as the baby descends a little bit further in the birth canal, secondary to the, the contraction, the ongoing contractions, it's not uncommon that the next examination, somebody would, you know, would be uh, told that now their cervix is fully dilated or at 10 centimeters. There are instances where the baby is navigating through the pelvis and instead of rotating to look down, the baby may actually be rotating to look up. And in this instance, if you're dilating and the cervix 
a portion of the cervix is identified as not completely opening, it's it's it it may be a signal that this this is a labor where where the baby may arrest in the descent process in the pelvis. It you know, literally may not be fitting. If this is the case, that after additional time, potentially hours and more contractions, that portion of the cervix will feel as though it's still there and may actually feel as though it became what I believe she swollen, she yeah. called swollen, or, you know, it, it, essentially it's becoming edematous. It's yeah. you know, gaining a little bit of fluid as, as the labor process or the descent process of the baby has stalled. Right. I mean, basically it's, it's, you know, I think that the, this is a, probably a, an our fault thing in the messaging and the cervical lip really just indicates your cervix is nearly fully dilated, but not quite there yet. And it's not that the lip is holding the head back. It's not that the lip is the problem. It may be a sign of a problem if it doesn't go away. I mean, usually, like you said, you find it and then X hours later, it's the head's rotated and passed there and the patient's fully dilated, or cervix is fully dilated. But if the lip is staying there and the head's not coming through, it's not that like the lip is obstructing it. It's just that that's a sign that the head's not descending in the pelvis. And so we don't consider it at all problematic to tell someone you have a cervical lip and anterior lip. It just means them, hey, you're almost there. And then hopefully soon you will be. It's not much different from saying someone nine or nine and a half centimeters. It's just maybe a little bit further than that. Yeah, I would describe it as, you know, maybe not 10. Yeah, 9.8. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost, almost there. So yes, I think that maybe the messaging that both Samantha and Jamie got that it was somehow a problem. It's pretty common. If you check people frequently enough, they'll often be one. But again, usually it's just going to go away as the head descends. And if it doesn't, that's a separate issue, but it's not because of the lip. It's just a sign of that. Excellent. Sam, mailbag. Good job. Hey, invite, <laughs> invite me back. This is fun. Lightning round. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.